Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Good evening. I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, recorded live tonight at Joe's Pub in New York City. We have got a crowd full of smart people, and we're going to bring them on stage to tell us something interesting or puzzling, maybe even astonishing. And if everything goes as planned, we will all be a bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host, the Food World superstar, Gail Simmons. Welcome, Gail. Hi. Let's see what we know about you Mm -hmm. so far. We know you've been a judge on a show called Top Chef since the show's debut, and that you're also director of special projects at Food & Wine. We know you are Canadian, of all things, famous for its uh, cuisine, and that through high school you were a ski and canoe instructor. We know you then went on to culinary school, that you trained in the kitchen at Le Cirque, and that you've just published your first cookbook, Bringing It Home, so congratulations on that. All true. We also know you have been named the number one reality TV judge in America because, and I quote, contestants respect her and she doesn't alienate anyone. So, Gail, let's see if we can't shatter that reputation tonight, shall we? So, Gail Simmons, tell us something we don't yet know about you. I have an admittedly irrational dislike of black beans. Uh, irrational because... Irrational because black beans aren't bad. I like every other bean. They're healthy, full of protein. But black beans and I don't have a good relationship. Although, if I have to eat them for work purposes, I will well, suck it up. That's so noble of you. Um, I have aversions to people the way you do to black beans. That like, also the, No, there are some true. people that, like, they've never done anything wrong. Right. They taste fine. I just uh, hate them. Hate that's them right. to the core. They're kind yeah. of rubbed it the wrong way. Yeah. Is there any other food that you, uh, that you love that we might not know about? Yes. I have a bit of an obsession with jerky. Hmm. Um, I love dried, cured, salted meats. Um, my father's from South Africa, so I grew up eating something called biltong, which is the South African version, but it's not, there's no sugar added. It's really just salted and dried. Is it beef or is it some other animal? In South Africa, it's mostly beef, but there's lots of other animals. Um, you How can, do you feel about other jerkies generally? Turkey jerky? I feel great about bison them. Bison jerky? All of it. I mean, ostrich is actually pretty delicious. It's more about the chew. Is you know, an the, ostrich farmer in the back or just a fan? Really likes ostriches. It's the texture yeah. that I love so much. Yep. Yeah. Well, um, we're glad to know what you like, what you don't like. We're thrilled that you are here with us tonight. Thank you. Um, Let's discuss how it's going to work. Guests will come on stage one at a time to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. And our theme tonight is the human senses. Smell, sound, taste, you name it. Gail and I will hear them out, we'll ask some questions, and then our live audience will ultimately vote for a winner. The vote will be based on three simple criteria. Number one... Did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? Now, to help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, the rather brainy Mike Maughan. (laughs) 
Mike is head of global insights at Qualtrics. He's co-founder of Five for the Fight, a campaign to eradicate cancer. Mike, it is great to have you back with us tonight. Do you, you think your senses are uh, adequate for fact-checking a show about senses? They're okay. <laughs> I'll be honest. Yeah. Confidence, Mike. Well, when it comes to senses, mine have never worked incredibly well. So in the second grade, I couldn't see the board at all in class. But my parents didn't believe me because none of my siblings had ever needed glasses. So when my mom finally took me to the eye doctor a year later and realized that I really couldn't see, I'll never forget, she buried her head in her hands and just said, oh my goodness, you really are blind as a bat. Was that, was that out of uh, empathy for you or like, you're my one kid who's messed up kind of feeling? <laughs> in so many ways, I'm the one kid that's messed up. <laughs> Mike Mon, very happy to have you here. You'll be watching out for the facts. It's time then to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our first guest, John Batiste. So, uh, John, it's great to have you here. A lot of people are very familiar with your work. For those few who may not be, why don't you describe quickly what you do? Well, I play music. I'm a musician. I'm a man. And I love people. How do you feel about black beans? I like black beans, being one of them. (laughs) (laughs) All right, John. Um, So Gail's ready. Mike Mon's ready. What do you have for us tonight? Tell me something I don't know. Well, I have an instrument I call the harmonica board. It's like a harmonica and an accordion put together, Um, also known as a melodica. A melody horn. Are people here familiar with a melodica sound and playing, or not really? Yeah, sort of ish. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, so, ooh, that was lukewarm. It sounds like there's a lot of room for teaching then. Yeah. So, let me show what do you want to teach us tonight? Check this out. Sounds good. <laughs> and uh, what's your relationship like with the, uh, with the instrument beyond? Do, do you feel like it's used widely enough? It should be used more widely? I think that anything that can be used to break the ice and that's as averse to pomposity as this instrument mm-hmm. should be used. When you hear it, it brings you to a very childlike place, at least for me, it kind of sounds like... (laughs) It's it's, it's a toy, but in the hands of great artists and not great artists, it can be a lot of fun. Now, I would think that because it's so... You see it right there. You see the keyboard, but you can also blow. So is it used a lot in instruction? Well, yes, it's something that people teach on, and in Japan they use it a lot. But I think it's pretty much like a recorder. Gail, do you love the recorder? I'm going to give a little shout-out to the recorder right now. My father, who is 80 years old, has been playing the recorder for 55 years. He is an intensely talented recorder player. He plays like Baroque recorder. I mean, seriously. Wow. And so everyone, everyone says to me, 
the recorder. That's what I played in second grade. Yes. Um, but in my house, it's a thing of beauty. Oh my so respect goodness. for the that recorder. So, John, here's a question. You went to Juilliard? Yes, indeed. What did you study exactly? I studied jazz piano, and I did an undergraduate and master's degree, and I met my band there. Was there any instruction at Juilliard in the harmonic board? Yes, there was a lot of instruction not to play it. <laughs> I'm from New Orleans, so when I came to New York, it was 2004, I was 17 years old, and I had an even deeper, I'll say richer, accent. And um, I would walk through the halls, and I would wear my oversized clothes, and I would have my teal melodica. And I don't think they really got it then. Mm. Why did you choose the melodica, the harmonica board? Or did it choose you? You know, I, I like interacting with people, and I love embracing awkwardness. Hmm. And I love to improvise, and I love things that kind of cut through the energy of whatever is happening. So all those reasons combined made me really want something that would allow me to do that in performance. And when I stepped into the jazz world from New Orleans and the classical world, sitting at a piano and not being able to move or go into the crowd or embrace people was something that kind of felt limiting for me. So I wanted to have the ability to study and assimilate all of the great masters, Bach, Thelonious Monk, you know, but also I want to just get down dirty with the people. It, it really brings me back to a place of innocence and yeah. childlike exuberance and joy that I just love to always keep right cheer in my heart. The thing that you just said that's so astonishing to me, though, is that you love to, like put yourself in situations where you're not comfortable and embrace oh, yes. new, but like that's the opposite of probably 99% of us here was or is music a way kind of a route for you to do that music is a route for everybody to do that whether they know it or not music is liberating because it's such a spiritual exchange it's coming from somebody's mind and their heart and they're beating on an instrument for how many hours to create a thing of beauty to share with people so I think when people listen to music and they get in a room like this together and they dance together and they're shaking their butt and they're standing next to somebody they never met before, that's, <laughs> that's the thing that I took, you know, because I was pretty quiet up until I was about 15 or 16. Oh, is that right? So I kind of use music as a way for me to step out and get awkward. Can I ask you, you so you grew up in a very uh, a well-known and musical family in New Orleans, which has this unbelievably rich but I think unique tradition in America from Jelly Roll Morton to Professor Longhair to Woo! all the R&B stuff Woo! yeah <laughs> so what's it like to grow up as a part of that and you know get into it you don't realize how rich the culture is until you leave because there's music for everything. There's music to dance. There's music for when someone dies. There's music for when people are born. There's music for every function of life. John, you've recorded on piano what I think is a, a gorgeous interpretation of a song that not everyone loves, both musically in these days, uh, politically, the Star Spangled Banner. Can we, uh, can we run a quick clip of that, please?
just talk for a second about uh, that recording and that song? Wow, that brought me back. We made the record preceding a tour that was nine months long. And we went to five different continents and we played every single kind of venue like street corners to like we played Carnegie Hall. We played in the Middle East and like in the desert. And, and that kind of, that song, the Star Spangled Banner, was on the record. So we would play it in all these different <laughs> places. And I feel like it, it really is a song that we, we have so much controversy around right now, but it's one of the things that in our tradition we do together. Whether we do it together, you know, kneeling or mm-hmm. we do it standing, it, we still haven't broken that tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the power of a song like that. Mm-hmm. Mike Maughan, were all those notes that John played true and the words that came out of his mouth, were they true as well? I think the truest thing he said is that you love embracing awkwardness. And if you love embracing awkwardness, there was no shortage of people to hug at Juilliard. <laughs> uh, I, I, yes, indeed. So uh, the, the melodica or harmonica board is indeed a blend between the harmonica and an accordion. The accordion and harmonica are listed respectively as the fifth and seventh most annoying instruments in the world. <laughs> hey, John Batiste, thanks so much for playing uh, Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our next guest, Ann Barwich. Ann, come on up. All right, Ann, uh, tell us what you do. So I'm an empirical philosopher of science and the senses. I'm obsessed with the sense of smell, and I do my postdoctoral research at Columbia with a neuroscientist, Stuart Feierstein, to figure out how we smell. The philosophy is kind of incidental? It's really about the science of smell, or the philosophy is important to it? Uh, the philosophy is important, too, because we still don't know how we smell, so philosophers can still speculate. What do you mean we don't know how we smell? We don't know how it works. We don't understand how it works? No. You're kidding. There are lots of open questions. So when you, we know the sense of vision... We know uh, audition, but how, we, how our brains actually make sense of sense, we don't know. Okay, interesting. So you have something to tell us tonight. What do you have exactly? So we often think that dogs are so much better than we are in terms of smelling, um, but the human sense of smell can rival that of dogs. So why do we think that dogs are so much better than we are at it? Gail Simmons, why do we think dogs are so much better? All I can think of are police dogs at the airport. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that comes to mind. So if we have just as good a sense of smell, why aren't there humans sniffing around at the airport? How much would somebody have to pay you to Mm. go on all all four the whole day and sniff people's stuff? Everybody has a price, right? Yep. Also, when you say a better sense of smell... Like, I think I, my dog likes to go around doing what other dogs do, sniff other dogs' butts. So I don't know if I'd call that better. I'd call it different <laughs> than ours. Most people have the impression, I guess, through bloodhounds and drug-sniffing right. and cancer-sniffing dogs, right, 
that dogs are better. Are you telling us that that's not the case? It's not quite the case. So medical cancer detection dogs are amazing. But they're, well, actually, we could do the same. So a lot of diseases like cancers and even Parkinson have a scent signature because it does change how your body processes things. And there's even the case of a nurse in, in Britain Joy Milne, who actually can smell by the sweat of patients. So she can smell some, whether somebody has Parkinson. So it is possible. It's just that we don't pay attention. There needs to be a Meryl Streep film about this woman. <laughs> oh, yes. She will win an Oscar. I mean, there's just no question. So, Anne, do you think we could train up Gail Simmons to sniff down, like, kidnap victims and drug dealers? I'm not bad. My sense of smell. It's not as good as my husband's, arguably, but it's pretty good. You're saying it's all training? A lot of it is actually really training. So if you think of a perfumer, right. a wine taster, they yeah. have the verbs, they know how to do it, and there are even studies who show that if you're trained but with vocabulary and knowing what to look for, you get better, even after three weeks as a layperson. Okay, so how do we know that your assertion is roughly true? There is an amazing study, actually, by a guy called uh, Noam Sober, who's a neuroscientist, and he does the most insane studies. And at some point he thought, well, how can we test this? So he first had a dog sniffing out uh, the scent trail of a pheasant. And the dog went like this in this kind of spiral um, trace. And then he had 32 Berkeley undergrads, hungry undergrads, trying to trace the scent of chocolate. They found it, not only in the same movement as the dog, but with training, they got better. So it's not that we can't do it, it's just that we don't pay attention and we don't crawl on all fours, which dogs do all the time. And why do they do that? Because this is where the scents are. Smells are always close to a surface. Well, also, they can't walk, right? We're, we're in agreement there? <laughs> there is that. Or talk, for that yeah. matter. Oh. So you're basically, you're trashing dogs here by saying that... no, 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 because you're saying, like, the one thing that we think they're really awesome at, they're not actually that good, and they go around sniffing each other's butts, which we wouldn't do. So, y- To be fair, if you have that good of a sense of smell, would you really go that close to the source? Oh, boy, good point. Good question. That's what you get with a German philosopher, yeah. Um, what about people who lose their sense of smell entirely? How, how common is that? It happens more often than we think. Uh, The problem is that people don't report it. And also the problem is it's often that people don't necessarily realize it immediately. They notice it as a loss of taste. If If some of you have like a wine, for instance, a red wine, a white wine, close your nose, it looks stupid, but close it like that, uh, drink a sip and you will taste the alcohol. Then release your nostrils, breathe out and all the kind of flavor notes hit you. That is mostly smell. And we know it when we have a cold, we can't taste a thing. So most of taste is actually smell. Gail, um, mm-hmm. even I, who don't cook like you and your whole world, we know that smell is said to be an incredibly important component, not just of eating, but of, of, of cooking. Sure. What, tell, talk to us a little bit about that. Lots of people love to tell me how they can't cook. They're not good cooks. It's really about training, and especially because my job in the public is more to taste than to cook. So I get a lot of questions about who am I to be someone who's judging what things taste like? And the truth is, I don't claim to be a super taster. I just claim to have had really good training. And that's how my taste is developed. Mm -hmm. And I spend a lot of time eating and thinking about what I'm tasting. And obviously, that is completely connected to olfactory Issues. Mike Mon Anne is telling us that humans are really good at sniffing, maybe almost as good as dogs. How factual are we? 
So first, I just want to answer the question, is the worst smell in the world? Apparently, there's a debate between decaying turtle or vulture vomit. Mm. Um, I thankfully, Theoretically, you could get both of those at once, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which would be the winner? So, so the jury is still out on this a little bit, but there is existing research to suggest that it may be true. There's this 2006 study that you referenced in Nature Neuroscience where researchers blindfolded 32 students, and in essence, they covered up their other senses. So they made them wear earmuffs, knee pads, thick gloves to prevent them from using any other senses, and then had them smell and sniff along a 10-meter piece of twine dipped in chocolate essence. Mm. And two-thirds of them were able to track it, and because we have all these other senses, we don't have to rely on smell so much, and thus it's diminished. So interesting. Ann Barwich, thanks so much for coming to play. Tell me something I don't know. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more guests. We will make Gail Simmons tell us some things we do not know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend one, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our fact checker is Mike Maughan, and tonight's co-host is Gail Simmons. Before we get back to the game, we have got some lightning round questions written especially for you, Gail Simmons. You feeling pretty ready? Born ready, Stephen. Let's start with uh, just a quick this or that round with our Canadian friend. Montreal bagels or New York bagels? I'm sorry, New York. Montreal Mm. bagels. I know, I know, but... They're very special and unique. You really know how to play to the crowd. I know. I can't help it. I got to tell the truth. All right. We'll give you another shot here. Montreal smoked meat or New York pastrami? God, you're killing me. Smoked meat. I can't help myself. I'm Canadian. All right. Try try this one. Poutine or tachos, which for those of you who don't know are tater tot nachos. Okay. That I can safely say both. Okay. See, you're, you're playing it safer as we go. Yeah. Canadian bacon or bacon? Bacon. There we go. I have no interest in Canadian bacon. Just for the record, in Canada, they don't call it Canadian bacon. (laughs) They call it back bacon, and I have never liked it. Okay. Uh, And finally, in our this or that Canadian edition, Justin Trudeau or... Actually, we don't have anyone for you there. So um... (laughs) I'll take Justin Trudeau any day. All right. Moving on, moving on. Uh, taste is obviously an important sense in, in, in cooking and eating, but what's the next most important and why? I actually talk about this a lot to people that of all the arts that exist, I really think cooking is the only one that truly engages all five senses. Mm. I do. Mm. You can talk about it. I'm pretty excited about that too. <laughs> but it is true. Every, you know, all five senses are really engaged when you're cooking. I'm not to say that if you are missing one, it's impossible, but obviously taste. Um, smell, of course. Touch. I mean, you need to be able to get your hands dirty and not be afraid to touch and, and understand texture. And sound, for sure, when the temperature of a pan is right. So that sizzle in the pan is really important. You need to understand the popping of popcorn mm-hmm. or, you know, sounds in a kitchen, I think we actually often take for granted. Mm-hmm. Am I missing a sense? Sight. Sight. 
obviously presentation and beauty is so much about food, but also understanding doneness is so much about sight mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, you have spoken out against cake pops. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with them? <laughs> if there's something on a stick, it better either be a skewer of meat that is mm. grilled over open flame or frozen like a popsicle. I don't right. need other right. things on sticks. Right. Um, if you had to invent one desperately needed kitchen gadget, what would it be? Ooh. I would say it's either a beet peeler mm. or a pomegranate de-seeder. Mm. Both jobs that I would prefer not to do because everything gets stained yeah. and, and they're painstaking. Um, are all the superstar chefs we see on TV these days truly as down-to-earth, humble, and considerate as they appear? All is a big <laughs> word, Stephen. Um, some most definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Colicchio being mm-hmm. one of them. Um, Mario Batali being one of them. Michael Simon being absolutely one of them. Um, Rachel Ray being one of them. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple, let's just say, I either haven't met or prefer not to go out you, drinking with. You feel about them the way you feel about black beans. I mean, that's yeah. extreme. Yeah. I really dislike black beans. <laughs> and uh, finally, Gail Simmons, if you had not gotten into food and cooking, what do you think you'd be doing today? What I dream of doing if I ever had to give this up would actually be to be a zoologist. I studied anthropology in college um, and I have always been obsessed with primates of all kinds, um, Would humans this just included. be your way to sneak into a game reserve and make Eat the ostrich jerky <laughs> no. and whatnot? No, <laughs> no, no. no. Um, I, I, I just, I, I do love animals even though I eat them and I, I would love to work at mm. a zoo. Mm. Gail Simmons, thank you so much for answering our questions. Nicely done. Would you please welcome our next guest, Dan Hammermesh. Hello, Dan. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days? I'm a distinguished scholar in economics at Barnard College. I know your work uh, uh, in economics, as does anyone who's, who's followed economics for a while. What do you have to tell us about tonight? I've been working a lot on how people spend their time. Over the last 30 or 40 years in this country, men are doing more work at home, which may surprise people, and women are doing an awful lot less work at home. In other words, less cleaning up, less baby care, less mowing the lawn. So on average, the average American is doing less time at home, more time for work, and more time, despite what people think and complain about, more time for leisure also. Uh Uh-huh. So... Men have increased their, what do you call it, home production? Is home that what production you're... is the economist term of art. It's jargon. I'm sorry. And so men's home production has increased. Women's has decreased. Is that by, right? Women's has decreased by a lot more than men's has increased. <laughs> well, no, 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 please don't applaud because this, at the same time this has happened, men have cut back on the amount of time they spend working for pay and women have increased their ah. time working for pay. <laughs> <laughs> But the neat fact is that in total, take time working for pay, time working at home. Men and women in this country, and many other, but not all rich countries, do about the same amount of work in total. There's equality in, in total in work. Total. In so total. So if, if you add the home and what do you call the for pay, what do for you call it? We call it market work, but market. that's also jargon. So if you add up the home and market labor, men and women in the U.S. are about equal, but... Women are still putting in more time at home, correct? Absolutely. All right. 
Right. Absolutely right. And this is true in most rich countries, surprisingly Are there exceptions? Enough, but not all. A very good exception is Italy, where women do a heck of a lot more work in total, mm. a huge amount more of homework. And you might ask, what do you think women are doing at home much more than anywhere else in the world? Cooking. No! Oh! <laughs> absolutely not. I was, or uh, laundry? N- no, what they're doing, surprisingly enough, and if you ask somebody who's Italian, they say, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, they're cleaning the house. And it's a unique thing in Italy, to a lesser extent in France and other Mediterranean countries. So does this have to do with women in those places being particularly industrious or men being particularly lazy or, or maybe houses being particularly dirty? <laughs> Certainly yes on the first two. I wouldn't make any comments on how dirty the houses are. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just in the culture that attitudes in these countries are much more anti-woman than they are in places like certainly Sweden, Netherlands, Denmark, and perhaps even in the U.S., although I have some doubts about that these days. Some of this makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, certainly about here, the fact that women are working more outside the house since, what year did you say? That this sort you look of at this over from... the last 60 years, it's been going sure. on. It's not just a recent thing. Right, no, definitely not. I think what I mean is that there, there are more opportunities and life is much more expensive. So it's also that now that women have many more opportunities to work out of their home and to bring in more income, they're happy to do so. I I once saw this television show. It was a British show called Back in Time for Dinner. Every episode was based on a different decade of cooking in Britain and how the technology has changed the lives of, of families in Britain, specifically around the kitchen. And one of the episodes I saw was about the decade of the 50s Um, and it was about the freezer being invented. The invention of the freezer that could be then put in everybody's home, that really changed opportunities for women. You think even more of other things. I think the microwave is the biggest one. Sure, the microwave in the 80s. A guy stays out and works, comes home, as I used to do, and you could microwave the dinner Mm. and wait for your spouse to come home. I have a a two-part question for you. These data are from where and how reliable are they? The data are from a whole variety of surveys now done by the federal government every month, about a thousand people, asking you, sit down tomorrow morning and tell me what you were doing at every point from four o'clock this morning until 3.59 mm. tomorrow morning. Mm. Could you do that? If you, I think most of us can once we ask to sort of reconstruct everything. That's the kind of data that exists here and exists now in about 30 other countries, most of them wealthy countries also. Okay, so next question then is, You mentioned that home production has gone up a lot for men, gone down for women, but a lot of what falls into home production are menial tasks or menial labor that we used to want other people to all do, but now, in the last 20, 30 years, some of it has been recaptured or reinterpreted as leisure or pleasure. So gardening, for instance, is the number one outdoor activity in America. I think a lot of people now cook really for pleasure. So I'm curious if maybe some of that is reflected in the data that you're talking about. I don't think so. And we think, yes, some people, and I know for you, for example, it's a great pleasure to be cooking. I hope it is anyway. Oh, it definitely is. But I think that uh, the question, the jury is still out about if people are actually cooking more in America. I, really, I think food is a bigger topic, but I agree with you. I don't I, think I, I, I don't think, Steve, that you're right more. at all. I gotcha. think quite the contrary. Uh, we want to save time on it. Food and, and fast food and restaurant food. Restaurant food's going out, food. going up like crazy at this point. Much more eating out of restaurants. Not surprising. It's something that rich people do. And despite all our problems, we are getting richer mm-hmm. and we're doing more eating out. I'm very happy about that, mm-hmm. frankly. 
Mike Maughan, Dan Hammermesh, uh, has been telling us some things about uh, the time use survey and uh, men and women home production, et cetera, et cetera. Do you find it all holds up? So let's start by noting that, that everything here appears to be true. Men are indeed doing more in the home. The least surprising part, however, is that men, you'll all find this odd, men have a tendency to overestimate the amount of work they do. Uh, the, the New York Times recently ran the headline, men do more at home, but not as much as they think. Yeah. <laughs> so according to, the, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the only area in which men do more work than women is on maintenance and outdoor home care, such as mowing the lawn, and even then, it's just slightly more. In every other area, from kitchen, household activities, laundry, interior cleaning, etc., women still do much more. Yes, yeah. sadly true. Mm. Thank you, Mike, and Dan Hammermesh, thanks so much Thank for you. playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Time for one last quick break. When we return, a couple more guests, and then you, our live audience, will pick a winner. That's right after this. Welcome back. Would you please welcome our next guest, Melanie Keechel. Melanie, come on up. Hi, Melanie. Uh, Tell us, who are you? What do you do? Sure. I'm an assistant professor of history at Virginia Tech, and I'm the author of a book called Smell Detectives, Mm. an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. Interesting. So we've had new olfactory. I got old olfactory. You got old olfactory. Lovely. Um, Okay. So I'm just curious, when uh, when Anne was talking about how little we know completely the circuit of the olfactory system, did you... Do you know much about that and agree with it, or is that really not part of what you do? No, I do know about that, and I agree. The other thing I'd say is that what we know has also changed a lot over time. So the way in which they understood what they were smelling was really different in Mm. the 19th century than the way it is for us now. How do you mean? So it's all about perception. A lot of odors are out there, and then um, when we smell them, we decide if they're good or bad. So a lot of that has to do with what we're familiar with. Um, So for instance, when I smell skunk, I think it smells bad. But I grew up on a farm, and so when I smell manure, that doesn't really Mm. bother me. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people I know who are not from farms dislike Mm. that odor. You you say that like it's surprising. Like, can you believe (laughs) they don't like the smell of manure? Well, we called it fresh country air. And then there's habituation in smell, too, isn't there? I had a friend that lived above a fish shop, and yeah. I said, how can you live here? And he said, no, really, after the first you know, couple days, you really get used to it. And I thought he was nuts. And after I was visiting for a couple hours, you really don't, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Or if you go in a house where someone has cats, right, mm-hmm. or dogs. Oh, you lost um, a few cat boats right there. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell when I go into a house, and then I'm there, and it doesn't bother me. Okay, so what... Do you have to tell us that you know, that you think we don't, that's worth knowing and that's true? Well, I came with a question for you, which is if you know what these three things have in common, and they're Central Park, window boxes, and zoning laws. Central Park, window boxes, zoning laws. I'm trying to figure out how they all smell. I've never smelt a zoning law before. (laughs) Were were they... (laughs) Were they or are they designed 
in some way due to scent or designed around scent somehow? Good guess. So the thing that's really different about the way we smell things now and the way people smelled them in the 19th century is that we now believe in germ theory, which is that germs are what make us sick. But before scientists and doctors discovered germs at the end of the 19th century, people believed that bad airs, particularly bad smells, would make them sick. So all three things, the creation of Central Park, which was designed as an urban lung or a reservoir Mm. of fresh air, a breathing space, that was supposed to improve the smell of the city. Window boxes had very specific plants that women would plant in them that they thought purified the air and disinfected it as it blew into their homes, particularly because a lot of those 19th century homes were next door to slaughterhouses. So Mm. that manure smell I mentioned earlier, as well as some decomposition. Um, And then zoning laws come along a little bit later, but one of the first things that zoning laws are designed to do is to keep smelly industries away from middle and upper class homes. Mm. That is so fascinating. So let me ask you, just push back a tiny bit. So I accept the notion that there was a false association uh, mm-hmm. between smell and illness, mm-hmm. right? On the other hand, a lot of things that smell bad are, you know, places where pathogens grow. You know, Absolutely. piles of horse manure smelled bad, but also there was all kinds of stuff there. And then similarly, factories, you know, particulate pollution is obviously not good for you too. So how much of this is a case of actual... You speak of it as if, oh... It's a kind of nonsensical response. Oh, no, but... I think it made perfect sense. And, and I use the word sense very uh, literally, right? Yeah. So one of the things that people in the 19th century did, because they trusted their sense of smell a lot more than we do today, or they paid more attention to it, um, is that they had different methods to protect themselves from all of these things that they might be breathing in. Um, now, we wouldn't agree with all of them. One of them was to smoke cigars, because then you'd inhale that smoke instead of whatever odor was in the air. Um, But other things that they did, they worked. So whitewash. Everyone in the 19th century whitewashed their kitchens. Mm. The key ingredient in whitewash is lime. That's what makes it white. But lime also arrests decomposition. And so it's very important as well for, even as we understand sanitation today. How did you get into smell history? Not because you could call me Smelony. Um, <laughs> but apparently someone has. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that I got really captivated by when I was first starting out as a historian is the little stuff that we don't think about that's radically different between one time and another. And the thing in the 19th century is... Everyone's moving into cities, um, particularly in the United States. Cities get really big, but also really concentrated. And it's not just all of that population with its sewage and its garbage and their animals. It's also um, this explosion of industry. It produces a lot of meat, Mm -hmm. but also produces a lot of odors along the way. And the way that they talk about those was just really foreign. Mm. And so I was trying to figure Mm. that out. If you could index it, how much better or worse, but I assume better, does New York smell today than it did 100 years ago? I think it depends on where you go. Mm. <laughs> so 
So one thing that um, they, they were really concerned about in the 19th century were the odors from slaughterhouses and fertilizer um, factories. And so in Manhattan, the Board of Health started cracking down on those after the Civil War and wanted them to control their odors. Many of the businesses moved across the river. Um, so we can make jokes about New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> But the first place they moved was into Brooklyn. And the problem with that... Can we make jokes about Brooklyn, nope. too? Nope. No, no, no. <laughs> know, know your audience. Yeah. Um, one of the problems with that is that the odors blew back into New York City. How was um, cross-border either pollution or stink monitored, taxed, paid for, whatever then? Well, they had to create another level of mm. boards of health. And mm-hmm. so this is where our state board of health in New York State came from. One of the first things it was tasked with was tracing these odors to their sources. And their source turned out to be really nasty. It's this thing called sludge acid. Um, oil refiners would sell it to their neighbors, the fertilizer manufacturers, who were buying dead carcasses. And they would spread sludge acid over the carcasses and leave them out in the sun. You get the idea, yeah. Mike Maughan, um, I guess we'd call this How Foul Odors Shaped New York City uh, from Melanie Keechel. What can you tell us? So this idea that smell causes disease is referred to as the miasma theory, which stated that diseases such as cholera, chlamydia, even the Black Death were caused by bad smell or bad air. Some say the theory extended to other conditions as well. So, for example, this will delight Gail. It was once thought that one could become obese simply by inhaling the odor of food. (laughs) I just want to note the theory isn't completely dead. For example, in my family, after eating a big meal, we often gather around to watch an action movie to burn off all the calories. (laughs) Well played. Thank you, Mike Maughan, and thank you, Melanie Keechel, so much. Thank you. Great job. And would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Ian Horat. Ian, come on up. Hello, Ian. Hello. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do? So I work for a market research company that specializes in sensory research. So Mm -hmm. we work for some of the biggest food companies in the world, and we help them optimize their products. Excellent. What do you have to tell us tonight, then? It's about something we did in the UK, where I'm from. Um, And the question is, um, in a blind product test, why would a product that scores best in the test, so one that consumers like when they taste it blind the most, get withdrawn from the market quite soon afterwards? Get withdrawn because of... Are we supposed to... Are you being a little mysterious? It got withdrawn because it made people sick? Not making any money. It just didn't work. No one's buying it. Hmm. Even though when people taste it, it's the best. So the, yes, exactly. So in taste tests, it performed very well. Mm-hmm. And then in the market, it failed. Failed. Well, there must be a marketing aspect to that. There is a marketing aspect to it, but the biggest chocolate brand in the UK is Cadbury, and it was their product. Mm, and they're presumably pretty good at marketing, you're saying? Yes. Was the taste test conducted perhaps on dogs? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. That's all I had, really. That I was, mean, uh... I only have another question. Why does British Cadbury taste so much better than American Cadbury? <laughs> I'm just saying. Can you answer? That's like the question I've been wanting to know for most of my life. Well, that, that's the fault of my industry and your population. So it's, yeah. te- it's tested behind the you know scenes what? and it gravitates towards You're what people You're saying we prefer. get the chocolate we deserve. Yeah. 
I feel that. I feel that. Is it maybe something tactile or physical, like maybe when it's tested, it's fresh, but over time it loses a crunch or a mouthfeel or something? No, but that is a good guess. That's something that we have to control for when we do this kind of research. Mm-hmm. So we have to, the product has to be aged the right amount of time because it changes its physical characteristics mm-hmm. over time. Could it be that you're just very bad at testing? Could be, could be. It's always a chance, but no, I, I don't think so in this case. So, Gail, I think we don't know, do I'm we? I'm at the edge of my seat. Okay. <laughs> so it's to do with the expectations that, um, that are set up when you approach a product or a consumption experience. This is an instance of a company not, not delivering on the expectations it had set up. So, Can we get a specific example? Can you tell us what the two products were that yes. performed the best but tasted the worst and vice versa? So, yeah, so it's a, it's a slightly unusual category. So it's what we call dark chocolate, so high cocoa solids. So it's a bitter we product. We call it that too, just so you know. So. <laughs> So it's naturally a bitter product, so it's not something that people necessarily are going to give a very high score to, as they do to some products. Cadbury's do dominate the British chocolate market, and they had a sort of milk chocolate, which is quite soft and sweet and milky. Um, And then dark chocolate had come along and had started doing very well and um, grabbing a lot of market share. And it was also a premium product compared to, you know, the the standard bars two or three times the price. So they wanted to get in on the act. But who was already in on the act was this Green and Black, a brand that's still around now, um, and they had a certain positioning. It was all around sort of sophistication and luxury. Ah. And their product very much lived up to that. Where the Cadbury's product went wrong was it created a certain expectation, which was about kind of simplicity and traditional kind of values, a lot probably to do with Cadbury and what British people mm. associate with that. But then the product that they created was very liked. People, people liked it, but it was sort of luxurious and sensual. So there was a mismatch. Mm. So there's an expectation created, and it wasn't delivered upon. Mm. Is part of what you're suggesting that customers would buy the Cadbury dark chocolate because they think that dark chocolate is more sophisticated or more maybe more pleasurable, and then when they actually taste it, they think, oh, you know, I actually love milk chocolate, and so I'll stop buying that new one? I, don't, I think it's more the fact that something like dark chocolate was new in terms of its sort of mass distribution and availability. People were getting excited about it. It was a bit of a fad. Um, so they were buying into it, and they were buying into it for a specific reason, which was, frankly, probably to be a bit challenged. And then Cadbury had gone along, and they optimised it to be liked as much as possible, which is what most companies do. It makes sense on the surface, but it doesn't always work, mm. and it didn't work in this instance. I've got a question for you and or Gail, which is, do food companies that you work with or maybe chefs include flavours that are meant to be difficult, challenging, etc., knowing that people may not, quote, like them or find them pleasurable, but somehow the knowledge that they're consuming this thing that is challenging or difficult makes them like the product or the dish more. Yes, that kind of thing does go on sometimes, not all the time. So the really classic example is Red Bull. Back when Red Bull was launched, there weren't many products like that. It, it was unusual. They were trying to do something different in the category. They, well, for a start, they made their own refrigerators. But aside from that, you would find it in a refrigerator next to similar products that cost half as much mm-hmm. and were twice the size. So it was trying to do something quite difficult. Um, it had a very strong and specific claim about energy. So they could have made it taste as nice as possible, but they didn't. They made it taste like it worked, so... Oh, that's really interesting. So, had, and how did they do that? They just add a little battery acid or whatnot to the... Uh... 
Well, I mean, you know, they added a lot of sugar, which obviously cha- changes the way it feels in your mouth for a start. And then they added other things, I guess. But it had a very medicinal, very different, mm. distinctive flavor. Well, what about medicine per se? Like, coughs, are you telling us that cough syrup doesn't actually have to taste bad and that they just flavor it that way to make us feel like it's making us better? <laughs> to, to some extent, yes. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mind blown. Mm. I can speak to to the world of restaurants, and it sounds like this example with Cadbury is sort of similar, that it's about really knowing your audience, and if someone is going to Cadbury for a certain reason, it's very hard for them to go to Cadbury for a totally different reason. So, for example, when I go to my local casual pizza place because I love their pizza and their pizzas are traditional and simple and delicious, um, that's what I want. And if I go there one day and all of a sudden they are putting sea urchin and cod sperm on their, mm. on their pizzas, I will be very disappointed and probably won't go back to that pizza mm. restaurant anymore. Well, it's also a story, right? Right, I mean, of that's course, the, but um, I don't need Cadbury to tell me that right, story is what right. I kind of think seems yeah. to be the case here. So interesting. Mike Mon, Ian Hort has been telling us about uh, contradictory signaling in the, in the marketing uh, research that he does and maybe designing food to taste bad intentionally sometimes. What can you tell us about that? So let me just first say that, I mean, it's true that that happens. Uh, It's no surprise that people buy products that taste bad. To prove that, you need only to look to the fact that outside of China, the best-selling beer in the world is Bud Light. (laughs) Um, Do you love Bud Light? You're like, you're hesitating right there. Bud Light doesn't necessarily taste, it doesn't taste great, but it's inoffensive, which works well if you want to be a global beer, if you want to work all over the world. I was just trying to make a joke. (laughs) Um, Okay, but the best example we've seen of people making purchasing decisions that don't line up with a blind taste test is Pepsi and Coke. So a professor at Baylor performed this blind taste test with subjects hooked up to an fMRI machine, and in blind taste tests, most people preferred Pepsi, and Pepsi is associated with this higher level of activity in an area of the brain which helps evaluate different flavors. In a non-blind taste test, Coke was always more popular, and the thinking was that it's the uh, marketing and ad campaigns that overrides the taste buds. An alternative, more scientific theory is that while we may prefer sweeter chocolates or the sweeter Pepsi in a taste test with just a small sample, that doesn't represent the way we actually consume food or drinks. So while we may prefer the sweeter Pepsi by the sip, we prefer the taste of Coke by the bottle. Mm. It's interesting that the, the point you were making about sweetness is a very valid one. Bud Light is a sweet product. People, especially the kind of test that you're talking about, sip tests, where you don't get people to consume a lot of it, sweeter products tend to do better, which is one of the reasons things get sweeter and sweeter over time. It's difficult to drink a full bottle of it, but on a, when you do the kind of work we do, if someone just has a quick sip, it will score better. So you're saying to do a good blind taste test for beer, you, in your job have to get people plastered not just well, sipping well that would be the best way to do it from a taste perspective but we can't do right, that i think we should a... stop there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's good ian horat thank you so much for playing that was great can we give one more hand to all our guests tonight i thought that was fantastic It is time now for our live audience to pick a winner. But first, Gail Simmons, Mike Maughan, and I will each weigh in with what we thought was kind of nifty stuff tonight. Remember, everyone, the three criteria. Did our guest tell us something we truly did not know? Was it worth knowing? And was it demonstrably true? So, Gail, I'm curious to know what you were particularly impressed with tonight. A number of things. Both Anne and Melanie, the smell 
experts definitely taught me things I did not know. Yeah. I, I loved hearing the personal, passionate side of, of John Batiste mm-hmm. and his melodica. Um, and I think that he too gave us a lot of insight into the world that he inhabits that is sometimes awkward, but that he fills with a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. I think that was Very really good. nice. Mike Mon, what'd you like? Yeah, I thought they were all interesting. I mean, I appreciated Dan telling us that men are not as lazy as previously reported, but still pretty lazy. <laughs> um, so, so that was helpful. I think uh, the one that I would go with is Ian Horrett and, and helping us understand kind of how these different taste tests and maybe we don't make the most logical decisions. Mm. All I can say is I'm really glad I don't have to vote because it's a hard vote. Yes. Um, I was thrilled that John came and, uh, and taught us and, and played for us. Um, I never thought about smell on those dimensions, and we learned a lot about both history and the science of it. Um, the natural cynic in me was very happy to know that food companies do the kinds of things that they do to, to get us consuming their product more. And Dan Hammermesh is one of my favorite economists in the universe. I had a pretty good time tonight. So well done, everybody. You have heard from us, but as I said, we don't pick the winner, you do. Time now to do that. So please take out your phone, follow the texting instructions on the screen. So who will it be? John Batiste and why the melodica is the best instrument in the world. Anne Barwich with humans almost as good at sniffing as dogs. Dan Hammermesh with men not quite as lazy as previously reported. Melanie Keechel with how foul odors shaped New York City or Ian Horat with designing food to taste bad. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to this show without ads, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. Thank you very much. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks so much to all our guest presenters. It's a shame we have to pick one winner, but it is sort of a game show, so that's what we do. And our winner tonight, thank you so much for telling us about how foul odors shaped New York City, Melanie Keechel. Great job. What does she win, Stephen? What does she win, Gail Simmons? Well... To commemorate your victory, Melanie, we'd like to present you with this Certificate of Impressive Knowledge. And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know. Huge thanks to Gail and Mike, to our guests, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Thank you so much. On the next Tell Me Something I Don't Know, our gritty friend Angela Duckworth returns as co-host for an episode about mind games. I don't collect anything. I'm like the opposite of a hoarder. Mm -hmm. I have no worldly possessions that Mm. I care about. Do you go into other people's homes and throw away their stuff? I would like to. (laughs) That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Nathan Rossborough, Andrew Dunn, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. 
Also, thanks to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting the show together. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. <laughs>